please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, find verses 8 to 14, where we will focus our attention this morning. See if you recognize any of these names. The Pandyas, the Yamatos, the Tongas. And those names ring a bell? You can probably guess they're not family names from Inman. These are the three longest surviving dynasties in recorded history. The Pandyas topped this list as they ruled in southern India and Sri Lanka for over 2,000 years. From 400 B.C. to 1618 A.D. The Tongas have ruled for over 1,000 years and are still holding some power today. The Amatos are the Imperial House of Japan and have been since 539 A.D. Pretty impressive, 1,500 years. Or is it impressive? To us living in Kansas, where the oldest building, according to Wikipedia, is around 200 years old, we don't have the scale for the ancient that some people and places have. To us, old is the courthouse. It's not even 100 years old. Our nation is less than 250 years old. That's a spring chicken on the pages of world history. But the Pandyas, 2,000 years. Surely that's impressive. Truth is, they only seem impressive because we gauge them off of our lifetime. 1,500 years is impressive when I consider, oh, the Yamato's but it's impressive because I have 42 years under my belt. It's absolutely puny when you think of it in light of eternity. And when we're considering an eternal throne, there is nothing on earth that stands a chance at comparison. Why? Because Jesus and his throne are eternal, something that we cannot grasp apart from God's help. So stand with me. Let's read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. See the power and the wonder and the glory of our eternal king and his throne. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, we need your help so that we can praise your Son for who he truly is. Confront us with the realities of eternity. Charge our hearts with wonder and awe as we see what we are not accustomed to. Demand of us that in our hearts we are humbled before you and help us. We cannot do this on our own, so we ask Give us the grace to see our Savior for who he truly is, to recognize his reign as it really is. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. As we read, you were likely reminded that the preacher to the Hebrews is contrasting two things. He's contrasting in a large scale the angels and the Son of God in an effort to dispel any confusion on the identity of Jesus. The preacher praises the Son and clarifies the wonder of his throne. He says, Jesus is high and lifted up, exalted and eternal. The angels serve him. 
And in so doing today, as the Son of God is described and his throne is detailed, we will see seven marks of his throne and his character that demand our worship. So let's just jump right into it. In verse 8, we see that eternity is in view. The throne of our Savior, the Son, is eternal. Look again at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And immediately in verse 8, we see that we're dealing with a contrast. That's what you understand when we see but, meaning he's described something, but this, this other thing is different. Of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father calls the Son what? God. Remember, this preacher to the Hebrews is fond of his Old Testament Approximately 20% of the book of Hebrews is quotations or allusions from the Old Testament. This is no different. This is actually Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Originally, this psalm was for a Davidic prince, possibly at a wedding celebration or an installation. We don't know. Something along those lines. There, were, there, there are, however, elements in the psalm that cause us to know that the psalmist knew exactly what he was doing. He was making that psalm, Psalm 45, in order to be passed down through the generations of Davidic royalty. Psalmist knew it would be used throughout the ages. He knew there was a succession plan. Why? Because the Davidic kingdom was eternal. God had promised it to David that his descendants would always be ruling. The psalmist anticipates this royal succession. The preacher to the Hebrews would have viewed the vice regent of God in Psalm 45 as a king or a prince, regardless of what he was, as being fulfilled in Jesus, the eternal son. Vice regents, they bore God's authority in the Old Testament. Jesus is God's authority. Vice regents spoke for God. Jesus speaks as God. The preacher appropriates the psalm, you could say, and shows its fulfillment is in the Son. The point is the identity of the Son and the quality of his rule represented by his throne. The Son, again, the, is, the, the preacher is taking pains to help us see that the Jesus is the Son of God. This is the message that permeates the New Testament. It's a message that can only be misunderstood through a satanically crafted deception. You cannot view Jesus as anything other than the Son when you read your Bible, honestly. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, The Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Titus 2, 13, Jesus, God our Savior. Not only is Jesus the eternal Son, but God, He is. And the quality of the character of Christ's rule bears the quality of the man who sits on the throne. Jesus is that man, so his throne and his rule are eternal. The throne of Christ is on the one hand a thing. It's a literal seat where a literal, physical Jesus sits. But it's also a picture of how he exercises the authority that comes with being a son of God, ruling at God's right hand. Now he is on God's throne. He's at God's right hand. Notice the first major description of the throne is a description of Jesus as well, eternal, forever and ever. Don't forget, the angels are being contrasted here. What do we know about angels? Well, they began. They were created. They were made. Jesus, he was begotten eternally. He was never made. He always was. He was begotten and eternal. They began, Jesus is forever and ever. His very name declares his eternality. His name is I am, which should point to how important he is. To have any other relationship to time other than eternal is to have a needy and beholding Jesus. Would you give your life to a needy and beholding Jesus? Jesus is neither needy nor beholding. As Yahweh, Jesus is self-existent, existing before all things and having all things exist by him. He depends on nothing. Instead, all things depend on him. These truths are only true if Jesus and his throne are forever and ever absolutely eternal. Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. But how about worship? How does this invoke Worship. How can we look at the eternality of Christ and produce from our hearts worship or invoke from our hearts worship? Well, why can you trust Jesus now? 
because he will be there in the future. Why can you live for Christ now? Because he will fulfill his promises to you in the future. How do you know? Because he has been and will be forever and ever. Jesus is currently seated on the throne. Look up at the middle of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated on the Father's throne on high. There is a glass ceiling above Jesus. You can't go any higher. Why? Because it's infinitely high. There's, I'm kidding. There's no ceiling above Jesus. He's as high as you can get. That's the point of the author. He's as high as possible. Jesus will have his own throne when he inherits the eternal throne promised to the son of David. When God puts all the enemies under his feet, we'll get to that in verse 13. But he's not on some like sort of Ikea throne that he put together himself. Jesus is on God's throne, on a real throne, and his reign is forever and ever. How can we not worship an eternal forever king? Second second mark of Christ's throne that demands our worship is it's a sovereign throne. Look at the middle of verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then we see the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You may not see the word sovereign, but you see sovereignty. The Son, Jesus, on the Father's throne has a scepter, a scepter of power and uprightness, the scepter of his kingdom. And I don't want to be sloppy, but the preacher is using symbolic language, symbolic language he stole from a psalmist, the psalmist who wrote the psalm directed at another royal And while Jesus' rod of iron rule is coming, the truth is Jesus, as God, on God's throne, is still sovereign over his kingdom, which is everything. And while his perfect kingdom is yet future, he still rules as king in his kingdom now. And don't forget the thrust of this section is to do what with the angels? Contrast Jesus with them, the Son of God, with the angels who serve God. Jesus is the one ruling. He's the one with the scepter. We learn a truth about our Savior and King that should feed the magazine of our worship. It should fill our hearts with reasons to bow in your souls before a true and right and just and sovereign King. He's sovereign. He's independent. He's able. His will, his power, his counsel, everything about the Son, the King, is sovereign. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Can you imagine the audacity and arrogance of a man to say that? You should never worship or even relate to or get to know someone who comes up to you and says that. That's reason for incarceration. I mean, that's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? How could you be that crazy? This person is a loony if they say that. But this is true of Jesus because he's what? Able, sovereign, eternal, worthy. No one acts apart from the sovereign plan of God. Every choice, every act, every decision made by every human in the world all flows through, including the most evil and debauched and heinous of treacherous acts against God and fellow man. All of it goes through the sovereign plan and hand and scepter of righteousness and power of our Lord over all. Nothing escapes his rule. Nothing that will not provide him the greatest glory in either reward or judgment is allowed to happen. There cannot be a single rogue proton that is allowed to operate independently and not directly for the purpose of our sovereign Savior and King. Nothing. Nothing escapes his Rule. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, God says, I am God and there is none like me. I am God and there is none other. Jesus is the image of God and as such is unique amongst all things because he is God. He's in a class by himself, the only God. No one is like him, not the angels, not the longest standing dynasty in the world. No one. He is sovereign over everything. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Everything is under the power of his scepter. Deuteronomy 32, 39, there is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive. I wound, I heal. And there was none that can deliver out of my hand. Daniel chapter two, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Brothers and sisters, what option do we have but to worship the sovereign king? 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, Jesus doesn't just control what you see on ESPN or CNN or Fox News. He controls what happens in your heart. He rules over your heart as well. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is Christ's rule over all things. Everything that is, is in his kingdom. And he rules over his kingdom with a scepter of uprightness. You see, Jesus isn't merely powerful. He's all good as well. And Jesus isn't uh, all, just all good. He's all powerful. You have to have both. If Jesus is just all good, he's, well, thanks, buddy. I tried. Hope you're doing okay. That's all good. But if he's just all powerful, then he's a ruling tyrant. He has to be both. And that's exactly what we see coming next in verse 8. His reign, his throne, his scepter, his rule is upright. The son wields the scepter of of uprightness. Jesus you could say, is righteous. This isn't just a scepter of power. This is a scepter of upright power. And in this, there's an unspoken contrast with the angels. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, describes the day star, son of dawn, Satan leading a rebellion where a third of the angels fell from righteousness and turned to evil By the great deceiver. But contrast that with this powerful, forever righteous rule of the sovereign king, Jesus. There is no possibility of him changing. That's what the preacher is telling us. The righteous rule of King Jesus is greater than any efforts of the angels. But what is the uprightness of God? It's his his moral perfection. Jesus was morally perfect before his incarnation, but in his incarnation, he allowed his uprightness to be tested in ways that could not be tested in his deity. He allowed his uprightness to be tested in ways that we understand, to show it was perfect and unbreakable. We have a very wise saying in our culture. I don't know, maybe we used to. We used to say something like this, absolute power corrupts absolutely And in considering everyday normal fallen humanity, it's axiomatic. That's just how it works. But it's not so with Christ. He has absolute power and sovereignty, and he uses it for a tool to display his goodness and his uprightness. When you combine the imagery of a divine scepter with the quality of righteousness, the focus is on the character of the Son and his sovereignty. The Old Testament emphasizes the beauty of God's uprightness, the righteousness of God. Not only the righteousness of God, but also the need for righteousness on the part of God's people. Jesus has all the power, and he exercises perfect uprightness. The Son gives no grudging acceptance of a righteous standard. Who does that? We do. All the time. Not Christ. He is righteousness. His throne and his scepter, his eternal throne and his good scepter give us the dimensions of his divine sovereignty. It's eternal and infinite. His throne, his rule will never end. His scepter, his sovereignty will be executed in righteousness. Righteousness that he established in becoming a sacrifice for our sins. Righteousness that he defined at the cross. Could you ever doubt that Jesus is for you, knowing that Jesus died for you? Circumstances cloud our vision quite often, but when we consider the cross, do you really wonder if Jesus loved you? Jesus was sovereign. Did he do what he didn't want to? Of course not. Fourth, we worship the Son because he's not theoretical in his merit, he's active. There are many eschatological examples of this loving righteousness and hating wickedness. His judgment that's coming in the future and the reward for believers are great examples. Those who serve him will receive his active blessing and kindness. Those who reject him will be actively judged. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9. You, speaking of the Son, have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
This should be no surprise. What is it to love righteousness? Many people say they want to be righteous, but rare is the person that loves it. He's the model for our righteousness, and he's the means for our righteousness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What were you healed of? Skin cancer? No. Sin cancer. You were healed of sin. He loved righteousness so much that he died for us to be righteous. He hated wickedness so much that he had wickedness put on himself so that he could go to the cross and have wickedness judged perfectly. Jesus loved righteousness. Jesus hated wickedness. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made him the son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But that doesn't mean it was always easy for Christ to love righteousness and hate wickedness. He did, but there was a cost. In his incarnation, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 tells us he learned obedience. He acted on righteousness from what he suffered. Jesus, as the Son of God, was born a virgin. He was humanity's best. He was uncursed. But he was still left with the choice to choose to live in the way that loved righteousness and hated wickedness or not. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 says, Jesus was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus was active in loving righteousness and hating wickedness and active in his obedience to the glory of God. And because of this actual and active obedience, we find that his scepter is exalted and his throne is exalted and more worthy of our worship because it's perfect and righteous forever. Fifth, in verses 9 and 10, the Son is shown as the one who deserves our worship. Verses 9 and 10, the second half of verse 9 and verse 10. This is all building on itself. It's producing an impenetrable defense to the idea that anyone would say Jesus isn't worthy of worship. The second half of verse 9, there's a therefore. Therefore, God, your God. The therefore is indicating that Jesus' faithfulness to the Father's will is the basis for his reward. The reward of his rule over all as the obedient son, never straying, not once, never straying from the father's will, brings about his anointing with this oil of joy. When do you hear anointing today? It's just a silly sauce word. What are people talking about? They're praying to God for anointing. Where's anointing come from? What is it? When Jesus is anointed with this oil of joy, where does it come from? It comes from his life of obedience. You can't separate these two. There's a therefore to connect them. The reward of his rule over all is the obedient son, never straying from the father's will, brings about his anointing with the oil of joy. This anointing with the oil of gladness is the heavenly joy that is his as the sovereign king of kings. When he sat down on the throne of God at God's right hand on the highest place there was in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he received the joy that was set before him when he went to the cross, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Remember in Hebrews 12, Jesus is our example of endurance, of living under the difficulty that God puts in front of us. Jesus did that. The preacher says to run our race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, enduring as he did. This, what did Jesus do? He despised the shame. He hated the evil that was thrust upon him, but he did it for what purpose? For the joy that was set before him, the gladness that was coming, the father's reward that would be his, the throne that was coming for him. The cross came before the crown. Jesus earned the throne. Did he need to earn it? No. Did you need him to earn it? Yeah. God's favor would not be on the Son if he did not deserve favor. And his righteous reward would not come if he did not live righteously. But what we know of the Son was that always he acted righteously. So the anointing of God's joy was 
his. Now when you get to verse 10, you see and. So the preacher is continuing this argument. He's still harping on how Christ deserves his throne, but he shifts his attention uh, to the title or the character of Christ, which is why he deserves to be king. And he does this by shifting from Psalm 45 to Psalm 102. He changes his quotation. The preacher to the Hebrews is using Psalm 102 as a scriptural evidence for the superiority of the Son. And in the context of Psalm 102, the referent is God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation. Who might the preacher to the Hebrews be calling Lord or God? Jesus, the Son. What's the inspired text of Hebrews trying to communicate? That the Son is God. What does this mean? You can't equivocate on the reality that the Son is God or you don't know the Son. Jesus is God, and as God, he deserves the eternal righteous throne. Notice in verse 10, this is a continuation of the argument, and, but Jesus is called Lord. This is monstrous in understanding who Christ is. There is only one Lord. It's God. It's Yahweh. Who is Jesus? Yahweh. So, well, I thought Yahweh was, what did you think Yahweh was? Deuteronomy chapter 6, what does it say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is three. No, the Lord our God is one. The preacher didn't just say Jesus is called Lord lightly and neither should we. This is how we are saved, recognizing that Christ, Jesus, is God, is kurios, is Lord over all things, but specifically over you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9, Paul's quoting Joel chapter 3, verse 5. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, this is not some spiritual hocus pocus spell potion kind of stuff. This is the reality that in your life, Jesus is Lord. He's ruling over all things without exception, and you are within that out exception camp. He is your Lord. If he is your Lord, then he deserves to sit on your throne, which is submission to him. His name is beyond all things. This title of Lord deserves worship. He deserves the throne that he's been given. Verse 10, the son, the Lord laid the foundation of the earth. What does that mean? It means he earned it. Jesus doesn't just deserve the throne and the glory and the title because some sort of divine nepotism has happened. Jesus is not like the silver spoon inheritor of an industrial empire. Jesus has earned his title as Lord. Jesus has demonstrated his power, shown his glory, and as such deserves his throne. Repeated in the New Testament are these claims about Jesus that he's the one who made all things. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, for by him being Christ... All things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible, visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The preacher to the Hebrews is unwilling for us to have a lazy Christology. Jesus is God, and as God, Jesus created all things. And don't forget how greatly we need Christ to be the king he claims to be. The preacher says he is. If Jesus didn't create, who is Jesus? He's an errand boy. If Jesus didn't create, he's sub-God. If Jesus didn't create, we have a problem with the Trinity. If Jesus didn't create, we have a problem with our future because our hope is wrapped up in his ability to be as powerful as he's claimed to be. Because Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject even all things to himself. Jesus, as creator, deserves to be king and our hope and our object of worship. Notice there in the middle of verse 10, there's, an, uh, 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 there's, there's a kind of a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, a reminder that Jesus is not only deserving of worship as the creator, but he is eternal as the creator, who is active in the work of the most expansive and glory-declaring physical endeavor God has ever undertaken. What is it? The heavens. The heavens are the work of your hands. Never been to the Sistine Chapel, never seen Notre Dame 
with my own eyes. Never seen these you know, amazing pyramids in Egypt. But raise your hand if you have not seen the heavens. God gave everybody a ticket to the most amazing display he could provide, the heavens. The heavens are the work of the sun's hands. I found it funny. I was trying to illustrate this, trying to figure out how to illustrate this, and I was searching for things, and I was Googling. Dangerous, but I was Googling. I came across this humorous search trend. People search for how many stars are there in, and then there's like the top six, you know, how many stars are there in what? Well, how many stars are there in the universe is number one. The Milky Way is number two. How many stars are in the solar system is number three. How many stars are in the sky? And then the galaxy coming in at number six. How many stars are in the American flag? I was like, come on, people. But <laughs> the answer to one of those questions is one. Maybe you're a little rusty on your science, but how many stars are there in our solar system? One, the sun. The answer to another of those questions, how many stars are there in the galaxy? We have two estimates from our government, so you can trust both of them. <laughs> One is 100 billion. The other is 250 billion. I feel like one of those is wrong, but... The funny thing is, neither one can prove the other one wrong or right. God's creation, what's it designed to do? Dwarf you. It's designed to make us feel puny because we are puny. It's designed to humble us. God's creation is designed to give us a fear and a reverence to him because in the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, we have to fear him. God's creation is so matchless that our puny little efforts... And our puny little creations, like monster telescopes and AI counting programs, they can't even get it right. They try, and we spend lots of money on them, and they fail. But Christ, all the stars are logged in his heart. They're evidence of his power. They're created in the heavens to declare his glory. Many of the most beautiful stars and galaxies, I'm going to guarantee you something the Bible doesn't say. I'm guaranteeing you we cannot see them. God never reveals all of his glory. Fact check that. He cannot reveal all of his glory and be eternally glorious. If God doesn't cause your minds and the gears in there to start to squeak and squeal and smoke a little bit, I wonder, friend, are you listening to the heavens? Last night, did you see the sunset? Amazing. Every shade of beauty you could imagine. And where'd it go? Gone. God doesn't need a record of his beauty. He just always is perfectly fully, finally, eternally glorious and beautiful. When the glory of God speaks and proclaims his matchless wonder, do you find him worthy of worship? Does that evaluation of him as eternal and sovereign and righteous and active, does it drive you to actively worship him, understanding that he has done all that he could possibly do to show you that he is worthy of your worship? What are you waiting on? Would you like to write a comment card for God? Dear God, I feel like you could improve. Notice six, very closely to the first mark, we find again a reminder that Jesus is eternal. But this eternality is flavored with the idea of outlasting something. He's not only eternal, but he's everlasting. He alone is in this characteristic where he's able to outlast or able to go beyond everything else. Verse 11 in the context, again, it's important. We're contrasting Jesus with the angels, but here Jesus is shown to outlast the things that have always been in the eyes of humanity. Jesus is eternal. The angels are finite. They were created. They're, they're definitionally finite. Jesus is eternal. All of creation is finite. The idea of eternity is so hard for our minds to grasp. We really, in some ways, just absolutely can't grasp it, but we try and we do things like compare grandma's fine china to a Dixie cup. Like, okay, there's, that's a comparison. But that's not the comparison of infinite to finite. Because the Dixie cup, it'll still get you water. 
finite is nothing like infinite. Infinite cannot be quantified. Can somebody tell me what half of infinity is? It's a great answer. No, you can't tell me what half of it. It's infinity. Divide infinity by two. I know, go to the Juco math department, that'll, but whatever. You can't divide infinity. You can put it in a formula, but it doesn't work. Verse 11, the heavens, the earth, the oldest thing we can grapple with, they will perish. But Jesus will remain. They will perish. They are finite. The contrast is Jesus, the infinite. To be finite, something either has a beginning or an end or both. Normally, both. The heavens and the earth were created in the beginning and will be destroyed in the age to come. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter goes on in verses 12 and 13. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the earth, the heavenly bodies, will melt as they burn. But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth which in, in which righteousness dwells. Th- this is why the view that you don't need to go to the Grand Canyon or try to summit Mount Everest now, you can do it in eternity future. That's ridiculous. It's all going to be gone. There's a new creation coming. But for generations, Israelites had their hope in three different places. They had their hope in the favor of God because they're Israelites. They had their hope in the promised Messiah because he would rule and reign and care for them and conquer. And they had their hope in what? The land. The land. What land? It doesn't matter if you're talking about Judea or Galilee or your family farm or the comforts that we find in the stability of this earth. What do you know about the land? It's going to burn. It's going to go. Everything we have ever seen will surely perish, but Christ, verse 11, he will remain. End of verse 11, these things, they will wear out like a garment. If you have young kiddos, especially boys, some girls, but especially boys, you totally get this. I remember when we would buy clothes for Clive, and I just knew that generations of little Horton twits would be wearing these clothes we were buying because they were, you know, great and cool and they're going to be passed down. <laughs> I remember my parents got them this genuine set of key overalls. They're like this tall. Cool. Looked like a little engineer. After one summer, it's like we ran over them with the lawnmower. Like, what happened? What does this say? It says these things like a robe. I will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. You think Israelites didn't have little kids? They knew what it was to destroy things. The heavens and the earth will wear out like a garment. But you, speaking of Jesus, are the same. And your years will have no end. The preacher saying Jesus has the power to destroy all that he has created. That's terrifying. Unless it's not. Do you fear the coming judgment and destruction of all things? You don't have to. I think the preacher here is planting a seed in the soul of this audience to prepare them for what's coming in his sermon. This sermon is from a pastor who loves his people. He loves them enough to labor hard to produce an excellent sermon on their behalf. This sermon doesn't just fall out of some Old, comment, some old Testament commentary. He didn't download it off a GTP chat or something. It's seasoned with a healthy dose of warning. It's laced with passion and love for these people. It's spiced with their past trials and struggles and their success and their failure. The preacher's not omniscient. But he knows that they need warned. He doesn't need to be omniscient because he knows the heart. But he also knows God and he knows what God's word does. God's word searches the heart and it lays bare the heart. And it puts man up against God with whom we have to do. And so he reminds the people and he warns the people, family, judgment is coming. There will be a day when all this is gone. Are you ready. Don't ask your friend. Don't ask your spouse. Are you ready? You know the answer to that. Ask yourself, are you ready for the end? Because it's coming for some of you quicker than others. Not a judgment, just saying. 
like a thief in the night. There is no warning, no preparation, no appointment. If you're not ready, you should be terrified. I don't want you to feel comfortable. I want you to feel reality. And the reality is that our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Read over that and ask yourself, are you ready? There will be no mulligans. There's no do-overs. And it's not a take-home test. You can look it up on the internet. This is life or death. But here's the thing about judgment and the judgment of Jesus on all things. Though everything is going to pass away, though everything is going to be destroyed, it doesn't serve his purposes, middle of verse 12, but you are the same and your years will have no end. He remains. The heavens, gone. Jesus is good. The earth, gone. Jesus is holding the match. We don't have to fear an eternity that is coming that we are not able to endure on our own because we have the trustworthy prophet, the purifying priest, and the sovereign and perfect king who will lead us safely through everything. He's the same and has no end. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The point of worship here is clear. Everything, no matter how stable that it appears now, one day will disappear, except for Christ. What do you have that won't expire? A few days ago, we were at the table, and we had some barbecue sauce on the table, which just kind of shocked me. But it was expired. One of my children was surprised that we were still using it. Everything expires. I'm in that, you know, some of you, health. Kids, your health is going to expire. You don't know it now, but someday it will. I'm in that like tweener stage of life where I feel I'm not who I used to be, but I'm not like some of you going into a hospital for like routine maintenance. You know, it's, <laughs> our health expires. Relationships, they expire. Our cars, they break down. Our grass dies, our trees die, our house plants, some of you murder, but our, <laughs> our pets die, spouses die. We die. Everything is going to expire. Everything forever since the fall will continue to die. Except for the one who conquered death. End of verse 12. Your years have no end. When I look at this chunk of scripture describing our Savior and his throne, contrasting his eternal glory over the finite realities that we feel so often, one of my favorite themes of Hebrews is brought to mind. We're all pilgrims. So sink your roots deep, but when the Lord says it's time to go, leave it all behind. We're exiles. Our homeland is somewhere else. We're here, but not forever. This earth is not our home. We've been recreated in Christ, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and he's bringing us home someday. We're sojourners here. We're not without hope. We have God. We have his promises. We don't have to fear the judgment coming because we know our judgment's been accomplished in the past. Seventh, we find Christ. Not only the judge, but the victor. Read the first phrase of verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said? What's that? That's a bookend. He's, he's sticking your mind back up in verse 5 if you want to look back up there. For to which of the angels did he ever say? Did God ever say? What's the point? The point is the preacher's saying, case closed. This is all you need to know. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is better than the angels. These are the things that you have to understand to know Jesus in truth. His revelation is final. His deity is genuine. His sonship is eternal. His priesthood is perfect. He alone is king. And as king, he will be victorious. And the preacher proves this by quoting Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 might ring a bell to us today, but Psalm 110 to the Jews and to the early Christians, it was like the Romans ate of their day because Psalm 110 is all about what the Messiah is going to do, the judgment that God is going to act, the, the fruit and the beauty of what his reign will be. Psalm 110 
The most frequently quoted psalm in all the New Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most frequently quoted verse in all of the New Testament. Psalm 110 is alluded to multiple times throughout this sermon. What were the early Christians seeing that moved them so much through this psalm? What brought them so much comfort through this psalm? In short, that the king would come and rule over all without exception. He would be perfectly victorious. That's the message of Hebrews. That's the message of the Old Testament prophets. That's the message of Psalm 110. That's the message of Jesus in his incarnation. Jesus wins. Notice the prestige that is set before Jesus alone. Hebrews 1.13, the father says to the son, sit at my right hand. There's no throne higher, no greater privilege, no better position. There's no promotion from there. This is the father's throne, the king of glory and his son on the throne. But there's something interesting about this description. There's a marker of time. Look at the next phrase, sit at my right hand, uh huh, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's this? Well, this is, brothers, our eschatological hope. This is our hope for the future. It was the hope of Israel that though she rejected her Messiah at his first coming, and now uh, the hope is for all of God's people that Jesus is coming back to rule and reign over all of the enemies made by God, the footstool for his son. Someday, on that day, Jesus will leave the throne of his father and take the promised throne of the Davidic kingdom and rule in Jerusalem perfectly. Every knee will bow, some in judgment, some in worship. Friends, we're not rooting for Jesus, hoping he'll win. He will win. We just don't know when that will happen. We're not betting a little extra money that we have that Jesus can cover the spread. No, we know Jesus will be perfectly Victorious. Our lives depend on the promises of God being made true that Jesus at the right time will be victorious. We're not rooting for him like we root for the Chiefs, hoping that he'll catch the ball or hoping that Juwan Taylor won't jump off sides. No, we're not wondering if we know that it's coming. Our confidence for the future is Christ's track record for the past. And what do we see? In these verses, he alone is the same, verse 12. He alone will remain, verse 11. He alone was in the beginning, verse 10. He alone is the one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness, verse 9. He alone has the throne forever, verse 8. So he alone is the one the Father will make his enemies a footstool for your feet. And since the serpent was promised destruction in the garden, a final destruction by the Son has been coming, and one day he will be victorious over all. And again, Throughout the Old Testament, this promise is made to the people of God. It's clarified, crystallized, repeated, re remembered, loved, and cherished. One of the most beautiful places that points to the second coming is Zechariah 14. You're welcome to turn there. We'll read a few verses in Zechariah 14. The beginning of peace for Israel is, is, is brought out. The hope of Israel as the future day of the Lord, a, a day of judgment, a day of salvation, a day of worldwide conquest is coming, a day of restoration and vindication for Israel and for Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 14, you can be in verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Ezal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. 
There's no possible way to view that as today. But it could be tomorrow. Verse 12 describes the judgment of the enemies of God's people. Verse 13 to 15, their panic and destruction. Verse 16 to 19, the punishment of the nations who attacked Israel. And then look, pick it up again in verse 20. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Either Zechariah had absolutely no clue what he was talking about or we're still waiting on this. How's that fit with Hebrews? Well, what's the point? The point is Jesus' victory. His second coming is coming. Our only hope is the promised Jesus is going to be the promised king and the promised one who all of his enemies will be his footstool. And the angels in the context, they're inferior to Jesus in absolutely every way. That's why you see in verse 14, though Christ is king, the angels serve at God's direction. Jesus is seated on a throne. Jesus makes decrees. They serve. They follow orders. They serve him and care for us. Family, in this opening chapter of Hebrews chapter 1, We see the deity of Jesus made clear through his titles, through his divine names, through his divine works. He alone creates, redeems, sustains, and purifies his people from their sin. We see the worthy son of God and the worthiness of his divinity as the worthy object of our life and worship. Jesus is divine. He's omnipotent. He's immutable. He's forever. He's supreme. He's the ultimate victor. That's the message of Hebrews chapter 1. It's the message of the preacher to the Hebrews that he knew these people needed in their day, and it's the message that we need in our day. What's the message? Jesus friends, is better. Let's pray. Father, help us to take these truths, the realities of who our Savior is, and allow them to produce from our hearts genuine worship, treating him as Lord of all in our life. Help us. We need it. Our flesh is strong. Our enemy is crafty, and we're weak. So help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.